0: Jesus, keep me near the cross. We'll focus our thoughts on 1 Peter 2 and 24. 1 Peter 2 and 24. Please walk with me through this verse and notice some important ideas about the cross. First of all, notice the absolute necessity. The cross is absolutely necessary. The first phrase there. 1 Peter 2.24 Who his own self bore our sins in his body. Who his own self bore our sins in his body. What that does not mean. That does not mean that Jesus literally took our sins into his body. It does not mean that he bore the guilt of our sin. no. It does not mean that our sins were transferred to Him. No. It does not mean that our sins were absorbed by Him. Or that He was infected with our sins. No. Not any of that. Okay. Not any of that. Well, why can't it mean that? Well, because Jesus died as a perfect, innocent... Being, human being. He died in innocence. He didn't die with sins upon him at all. Right here in 1 Peter 1, 19. Notice that. Jesus died as a lamb without spot and without blemish. Notice that. If Jesus had any sins attached to him, then his death would have been deserved. But Jesus did not deserve the death. He was dying in our behalf, you see. And he is dying in our behalf as a perfect human being, as the perfect son of God. Then he's able to offer to us the sacrifice for sin. He had any sins literally attached to him, then he could not be the perfect sacrifice that God in his wisdom intended, you see. Again, in First Peter 1, 18 and 19, notice that we are saved or we are redeemed not by corruptible things, verse 18. Not by corruptible things, such as the traditions handed down by people, or by silver and gold, but rather only by, only by. We are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. And so in First Peter two, twenty-four. He Himself offered, He Himself bore our sins in His body. What does that mean? Well, it means simply that He bore the punishment of death, which is the consequence of sin. Jesus bore, He took upon Him the punishment of death, the penalty of death, which is the consequence of sin. Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. Notice that. The wages of sin is death. Jesus took upon him the very thing that we deserve. He took upon him the consequences of sin. He was free from sin, but he was treated as if he was a sinner in our behalf. And so our sins were not imputed unto him or transferred to him, but he bore the consequences of our sins. He was the sin offering uh, for us. Over in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, he who knew no sin became sin in our behalf. Not that he literally became sin, but he became a sin offering in our behalf. Isaiah 53 and verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's not laid upon him the actual, our actual sins, but he laid upon him the consequences of our sins. Romans 6 and 23. And how thankful we are. How thankful we are. This can be illustrated if you want to turn your Bibles to Lamentations in the Old Testament. Lamentations, Jeremiah, Jeremiah writing Lamentations, lamenting, okay, lamenting over the fall of Jerusalem and noticing what some of the people were saying there in Jerusalem. Notice Lamentations chapter 5 and verse number 7, Lamentations 5, 7, the people were saying, Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. What are they saying? They're saying our ancestors before us rebelled against God. God sent us into this captivity. He left Jerusalem fallen and we are bearing the consequences of what our fathers did before us. Okay. So similarly, Jesus is bearing the consequences on the cross of our sins. You see. Notice at the end of Isaiah 53, the great prophecy of our Lord and his death. Isaiah 53, the very last verse, verse 12. And the last statement of verse 12 says, Yet he bore the sins of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. That's what Jesus did. He bore the sins of many, the consequences of their sins. And... He made intercession for for all the transgressors, including including us. So first of all, from 1 Peter 2.24, notice the absolute necessity of the cross. We would be nowhere without it. No hope whatsoever without the cross. I know you know that, but how grateful we are to be able to read it, think about it, meditate upon it, once once again. Now it's all important. Every bit of it is important. Every bit of it is necessary. The prophecies of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the example of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, the the church of Jesus. It's all absolutely necessary, but there's a primary focus from God and in Scripture on the offering of Jesus on the cross because this is the sin offering. God sent Jesus to save people from their sins and and it took the sin offering of the perfect sacrifice to make this happen. So first notice the necessity of the cross, 1 Peter 2, uh, 24. Secondly, if you will, notice the pain of the cross. Notice 1 Peter 2.24 says, He bore, He bore it all. He bore our sins. He bore our sins. Notice at the end of the verse, Through His stripes we are healed, or through His wounds we are healed. The very nature of what Jesus did for us included physical pain. He bore. It was something to bear. It was something to endure. In fact, Hebrews 12 2, Hebrews 12 2 says that Jesus endured the cross. The cross was something to endure. Endure. Hebrews 2 verse 9 says, by the grace of God Jesus tasted death for every man. But the same verse also says this was a suffering of death. It wasn't just a death. It was a death that included Intense suffering, painful suffering. The word, and you have probably heard this before, but it's good to remember. The word excruciating, we use the word excruciating, comes from crucifixion. The letters EX mean out of, and the rest of the word pretty much means crucifixion, Excruciating out of the crucifixion. Okay, That's where we get the word excruciating pain. And this is, this is absolutely on target when it comes to what Jesus did for us. It was excruciating pain. When we read of Jesus coming to the cross, Matthew 27 and uh, 34, they offered him wine mixed with gall, kind of a narcotic, and he refused it. He refused it, Matthew 27, 34. He refused it because he wanted to endure the pain. He wanted to make the sacrifice necessary for our salvation. Pain. Notice the pain of the cross. The pain of the cross tells us what God thinks about sin, doesn't it? That he would allow his son. He would send his son. To endure this sort of pain tells us God's attitude towards sin, but also lets us know quickly how much He loves us, John 3:16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, and the rest you know. But it lets us know what He thinks about sin. It lets us know how much He loves us to see and to notice and to sin His Son to endure the pain that He endured. Going back to Isaiah 53, verse 10, it says here, It pleased the Lord, or it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. To crush Him. It was God's will to put Him to grief when His soul makes an offering for sin. You see that, Isaiah 53, 10? It pleased the Lord, it was the will of the Lord that Jesus be crushed, To endure this pain for us. Acts 2.23, Peter says, It was the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God that brought Jesus to the cross. It's God's will. We were just singing part of that song there. The wrath of God was satisfied. It's uncomfortable to read that or to sing it. But... We must try to come to know the holiness of God. The cross exists because of the holiness of God. We have trouble as human beings coming to grips with just how holy God is. He cannot tolerate even the slightest of sin. And I hate to even say it that way, just struggling for words. But there is no slight sin. God cannot tolerate in His presence even the fastest sort of sin or the quickest sort of sin or the least harmful sort of sin. Jesus, can't. the Lord cannot tolerate it for one second. That's how holy He is. There must have been this perfect sacrifice to satisfy, if you will, the wrath of God. See, this pain tells us, this pain tells us God's attitude towards sin, but also his love uh, for us. But you know, when you look at Jesus on the cross, still staying right here with the pain of the cross, when you look at Jesus on the cross, and you, you notice the last words that he utters while he's on the cross, it seems like his mind is on other things and not on his pain. As usual, Jesus is talking about other people, not himself. He's thinking about his mother. He's thinking about John taking care of his mother. He's saying things like, uh, Father, forgive them for they know not what to do. He knows why He's on the cross. He's thinking about you and me. He's thinking about the world's sins while He's on the cross. He's thinking about being faithful all the way through when He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's thinking about faithfulness to God. He must remain true to, to the Father all the way to the very end when He says, it is finished. Only one time do we get a hint in His words only one time do we get a hint of the physical agony he's going through, and that's John 19:28 when he says, "I thirst." I thirst. For the crucified victim, he he grows to be very thirsty, and his, son, his tongue begins to swell, and he has a very difficult time uh, maneuvering any parts of his body, but especially the breathing part. He says, "I I thirst. I thirst." He did this for us. You see, the very one who created the world, which is, what did they say, two-thirds water? Okay. The very one who turned water into wine, not just uh, a few drops of wine, but gallons of wine, the one who turned water into wine, the one, the one who made water gush out of the rock back in the days of Moses, th- that very one is now saying, I thirst. He's suffering physical agony in our behalf. Could he present water? He could present. He could get quickly. One word. He could get totally out of the ordeal. That he's in. But he will not do that. Because he's going to suffer for us. So notice first. The necessity of the cross. And then secondly. The pain of the cross. First Peter 2.24. Going back to First Peter 2.24. Notice in the third place. Notice the shame the shame of the cross. It says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Stop right there. On the tree. On the tree. In the, in the world of Jesus' day, and also in the Jewish world, hanging on a tree was a curse and a shame. Going over to Galatians 3, Paul describes this for us. Galatians, Galatians three ten to 13 Verse 13 says that Jesus became a curse for us because the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 21-23 says cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So Jesus in hanging on this tree, he becomes a curse for us because we're cursed because of our sin. He becomes a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. So we see here not only the pain of the cross but the shame associated with it. It was a shame to be hanging up there as a spectacle before the world, suffering as you are. That was meant to bring shame on you and your family and anybody else associated uh, with you. Think for a moment about the shame of the cross. Hebrews 6 and verse 6 says that some crucify afresh the Son of God and, and put him to an open shame, to open contempt. It's a shame. Shame. Isaiah 53 in verse 3. Isaiah 53 in verse 3 has this phrase. As one from whom men hide their faces. When you looked upon the Son of God. It was as if as one from whom you will hide your face. Have you ever met someone that, like that? That their physical... Condition, their physical appearance was almost hard even to look at. Hard even to look at. Several years ago, we were down here in the uh, doing a devotional at the Moulton Nursing Home, and one of the ladies that come in, she knew the old gospel hymns, but she had had an, an eye removed, and her patch that would cover the eye. Uh, had fallen off, but she didn't care, she was coming on the end of our devotional, and that just sticks with me as as uh, I was up there and doing a song and reading the scripture, and it was difficult to look her way because of that tremendous uh, hole uh, where her eyes should be. But here Jesus is, he's been scourged, almost beaten, whipped to death and now he's on the cross and as men looked it was difficult to look that way the shame the shame there's a man who wrote a memoir from way back in the 1940s and 50s he was um, a witness to some of the atrocities with the jews and the nazis and um, I think his name is Pierre von Paulsen. He tells of a scene in the police headquarters of the Nazi troops where on one side of the room they were beating a couple of the Jewish brethren, uh, but on the other side of the room there was a Jewish rabbi and they had stripped him uh, naked. And um, instead of just beating him to death, they were going to uh, make fun of him. They told him they stripped him naked, and then they said, um, "Preach the sermon you were going to preach this Saturday in the synagogue." And so the man began, the rabbi began to preach the sermon. He, it was from Micah six and verse eight, where the encouragement is to walk humbly with your God. He just began to talk about that scripture and and talk about his sermon as they whipped him and as they mocked him, as they whipped him, as they, and as as that rabbi had to watch his other two Jewish colleagues be beaten to death on the other side of the room. It brings us to the scenes. It reminds us of the scenes of Matthew 27 and um, and 26. Where they scourged Jesus and then after they scourged him, they whipped him. Then they brought him into um, to this arena. This um Headquarter type place. They called together all the battalion of the of the soldiers, and uh, they stripped him there, and they put the crown of thorns on him, and they mocked him. They put a reed in his hand. They put a purple robe on him, and they said, you know, you say you're a king, you got to have a crown. So they twisted some some thorns and made a crown and placed it on him. They say you're a king. They put a reed in his hand. They took the reed and beat it beat on his head, and they put. A robe on him, and then they knelt down, and, and as they're mocking, and they, they make fun of him. You say you're a king, you say, you say you're, a, you're a prophet, prophesy unto us. Who, who is it now that's beating you? Who is it now that's, that's hitting you? And, and they did that to our Lord. You see, there is the shame of the cross. What, what is quite amazing. And we understand God operates differently now than He did in biblical times, but it's still sometimes amazing the, the restraint that God has, the self-restraint that God Especially when there are, there are atrocities committed like was done with the Nazis against the, the Jewish people back in those days, or the school shootings, or uh, the people like the Hamas groups, and, and their wickedness and scores of other wickedness that has been done across the years. And, and we think about, well, God's surely restrained himself because we know he's not pleased with that. And he has the power to zap them right now, but, but he, he, he is restraining himself. That's not the way he operates in, in our time of history. But nothing compares to the self-restraint found right here around the cross even with the shame taking place think about how much self-restraint was brought to bear by Jesus remember Matthew 26, 52 and 53 Jesus told Peter don't you know at this time I could call legions of angels so there were legions of angels just waiting one word from Jesus just one word just one word Lord And we're there. We're there. Just one word could get him out of all of this ordeal, any of this ordeal. Don't you know that there was quite a bit of strength and self-restraint being shown by the Lord during this shame? We know there were. I mean, with every lash from the whip, just one word. Just one word, Lord. With every word of mockery, Lord, just one word. We're there. One word. We're there. With the twisting of the crown of thorns. We're there Lord. We're there. Even after Jesus was hanging on the cross. They still came by and said. You know he saved others himself. He cannot save. If you be the son of God. Come down from that cross. Just one word. From the Lord. Would take care of business. On that day. But. What self-restraint. God. Displays. In the shame of the cross. And for that, how grateful we are. And then finally, this morning, 1 Peter 2.24, we, we see the necessity of the cross, we see the pain of the cross, we see the shame of the cross. Notice the next phrase. When he says, He bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live unto righteousness. This refers to the triumph, the victory of the cross. The triumph of the cross. You see, basically, this pain and shame of the cross is meant to propel us, motivate us, propel us to die to sin and live, as we follow Christ, live unto righteousness. For through His wounds... We have been healed. That's what it's uh, that's what it's meant to do. There's a passage that I want you to connect to first Peter two, and that is Colossians two and verse fifteen. Colossians two and fifteen. I am sorry that I have not emphasized this properly over the years, but I'm making that correction right here because this needs to be to be emphasized with the cross. Colossians two fifteen We know Colossians 2.14 that says when when Jesus died on the cross then he nailed the old law there. Look at verse 15, Colossians 2.15 it says he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's what he did on the cross. The cross has a disarming effect it has a disarming impact What does it disarm us from? Well we were just singing there near my God to the near near and the third verse says sin with its follies I gladly resign all of its pleasures, all of its pleasures, pomp, and pride. Give me but Jesus, my Lord, crucify. This is what the cross is meant to do to us. Let me read that again from this psalm book. Sin with its follies I gladly resign all of its pleasures its pomp and its pride i resign give me but jesus my lord crucified you see that's the triumph of the cross it disarms us from what it disarms us from our pride it disarms us from our pleasure of sin it disarms us disarms us from all our selfishness that we feel that we have to contribute to the world. It disarms us of all that. Every tool and every weapon that Satan would give us to to manipulate in this life, the cross, if we so respond, disarms us from all that. It spoils all that. Right here at the cross, we see there's a centurion standing by, and the cross disarms him. Matthew twenty-seven fifty-four. he says, as Jesus is dying, he says, Surely this man was the Son of God. What was he able to see? He was able to see all too clearly the contrast between the thugs, which are his colleagues, and the victim, Jesus, who is in his last breath. He's asking for forgiveness of these thugs. The centurion was able to see that contrast and that that contrast disarmed him from all of his pomp and pride and weapons. He might as well put his sword down on the ground because the Lord has captured him. The cross disarmed one of the thieves hanging next to Jesus, the penitent thief. Luke 23, 42 and 43. 41, 42, where he says, Lord, uh, Jesus, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That thief knew more about Jesus than a lot of people did during that time on earth. He knew that Jesus, he called him Jesus, he knew Jesus was the savior of sin. He knew that Jesus had compassion, he says, remember me. He knew that Jesus was king and had a kingdom. He knew that Jesus' kingdom would not be just limited to this life and this earth, but rather it's possible that he and Jesus would be together in the kingdom which is to come. This thief, for whatever reasons he had become a thief, was now being disarmed by Jesus and the cross. Jesus on the cross. He disarmed Peter, didn't he? Peter puts himself... In First Peter two twenty four, Peter Peter puts himself there. He he says he bore our sins on that tree. And Peter, who had to go out and weep weep bitterly because of his denial of the Lord, Peter found hope in the cross. And the cross triumphs. He triumphed over that centurion. It triumphed over the thief. It triumphed over Peter, will it triumph over me? Will I ever... How about you? Will it ever triumph over you? That's why we've seen Jesus keep me near the cross. You know those two thieves next to Jesus. One repented, one did not. It presents a choice in the world, doesn't it? a choice in life. When you look at the powerlessness of Jesus, when you, when you, when you look at Jesus on the cross, allowing his, his power not to be displayed, the powerlessness of Jesus, what, what does that bring to your mind? For one thief, it said to him, it said, God is unable, God is impotent. He, he's unable to do anything. So he just died and went on to be with the devil but the other thief, he saw in the powerlessness of Christ, he saw the love of God. He saw that love conquers all. That's our choice too. The, choice, the choices that those two thieves made is our choice too. Will we look at the cross and see a, a God who is unable to do anything for us? Or will we see the real power of life? Will we see the love and humility and be able to incorporate that into our lives? You see, it's important not only to see the cross, but to sing this song, Jesus, keep me near the cross. Does it have any... Does it disarm me? A lot of Christians become Christians because of the cross, and then they forget about the cross. As if, well, that was them, but now... I'm going to take over. Lord, thank you for dying on the cross. Now I'll take over from here. And that's where we lose our souls. Because the cross is to have a continuous impact on us. Well, just a few thoughts here from 1 Peter 2.24 about how necessary the cross is, the pain of the cross, the shame of the cross, and the triumph, the victory of the cross. And only... It's only victorious if we're able to see it and we're willing to open our heart to it. Notice there that it's possible that the cross will move us to die to sin, really to repent, and then to live toward righteousness, which is simply to say, Lord, I will do what you want me to do. You want me to be baptized for forgiveness? I will do that. You want me to share your word? I will do that. You want me to worship in your name? I will do that. You want me to... To walk in your steps, I will do that. You want me to shine my light, I will do that. I will live under righteousness. What causes me to do that is, well, it's the cross. It's the cross. Notice verse 25 of 1 Peter 2. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We are, we are straying like sheep. But now, notice Peter's words there. Put yourself in Peter's words. Peter's shoes. Peter is saying this. It must have meant a lot to Peter. Peter must have remembered all the things he had done against the Lord. He, but he says, we were straying like, like, like sheep. But he says, but now we have returned unto the shepherd and bishop of our souls. That's what the invitation of God is all about. Yes, we all stray, but are you going to return? You know, now can be a lot different than then. Brother Wiley, come and lead us in this great song. Let's all stand.